0: We are in the middle of a sermon series called Emmanuel Means Home. and We're looking at uh, the the, the reality that God is our home, that He is all that we've longed for and hoped for. And uh, last week we looked at the Ten Commandments and the story of the Exodus in an entirely different way. Do you remember that? Do you recall that? We looked at the Ten Commandments and realized, really, they are what? Marriage vows. That's exactly right. They're marriage vows. We look at the experience from when God called Himself the I Am. The I Am was an invitation. The people had forgotten who God was. They, they were more Egyptian than they were Israelites. And so the I Am was an invitation to pay attention to who He is. And we read the following chapters, numerous chapters, about God showing who He is. He's courting these people, trying to win their hearts. He is their pillar of fire. He is their cloud. He is their bread. He is their water. He is their deliverer. He's their warrior. And God, time and time again, shows who He is in order to earn their love. And isn't that amazing that the God of the universe would try to earn the love of sinners? Most people would think that we have to clean ourselves up and make ourselves just right in order to earn God's love, but that's not how the gospel works. God has been trying to show us who He is to earn our hearts. Isn't that incredible? And so through the Exodus experience, God brings them to Exodus chapter 19, the foot of the mountain. And he basically gets down on one knee and he he uses very poetic and beautiful language. I brought you out of Egypt. I flew you on eagles' wings. You've seen how I've taken care of you and cared for you and loved you. Uh, Will you enter into this covenant with me? And Exodus chapter 20 is the vows themselves. And we know that they're vows because God is asking for commitment. And as he's asking for commitment, he too is making commitments. He will put us first. Let us not put anything uh, before him, no other gods before him. He will never allow anything in between us, and so on. No, uh, No graven images and idols. And so as the story goes on, Moses receives these vows, and he comes down the mountain, and he finds the children of Israel doing what? worshiping the golden calf, trusting in other gods. And so basically, they have cheated on God, cheated on the groom before the wedding was ever finished. And Moses recognizes these as wedding vows. We know and that they were broken because as he's carrying the Ten Commandments down the mountain, he sees them worshiping the golden calf, and what does he do with those commandments? He throws them and breaks them. And so Moses, uh, after a very short time, where does he go? Turns around and goes back up the mountain. Remember that? And he begs and pleads for God's mercy. And he talks to God about these people and, and uh, how God can change them and the, how he will be glorified when they are changed. And, and Moses pleads for his people in a beautiful prayer and God agrees to show them grace and mercy. And Moses spends an extended amount of time on the mountain with the Lord. And he receives another set of the Ten Commandments. And he comes down off from the mountain after spending an extended amount of time with the Lord. And there's something very unique and special about Moses. Does anyone know what that was? His face was shining with the glory of the Lord. He had spent so much time in God's presence that his face was just glowing with heavenly light. And Mo, Aaron is the first one to see Moses, and how does Aaron respond? He's kind of freaked out. <laughs> He's like, whoa, what is going on with you? This is, this is bizarre. I, I don't understand this. And then the children of Israel, the, the, the rest of them see him, and they can't bear to look at it either. They, they say, Moses, please put a veil, put a cover over your face because we can't bear to look at you. Now, do you see how ironic this is? What made Moses' face shine with heavenly light? What was it? Being in the presence of God. Isn't that true? And as we've been studying and as we realize, that's what God's will is for all of us, isn't, isn't it? All He's ever wanted is to be with us. So here was Moses in the presence of God, just like he wants to be with all of us, and his face was shining as a result of it, and as soon as the children of Israel see the results of someone who has been in the Lord's presence, they can't bear to look at it. See how tragic that is? You know, Paul picks up on this very theme and calls this out. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, beginning in verse 12. 2 Corinthians 3, 12. Uh, if you have your Bible, turn there. I know they'll have it on the screen. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, beginning in verse 12. Paul brings up this very tragedy. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. Now, what is he talking about there? Well, think about this. Why was God doing all the things that He was doing for the children of Israel? We've, we've been talking about it in our sermon series, especially in last week. Why did He do all of those things? So that they could know Him and be in a relationship with Him and commune with Him. Isn't that true? The reason that God set up the sanctuary and all of these things and did all that He did for Israel was so that He could have an intimate, loving relationship with them. Are, are you following me? And all of these things that God did were symbols of who he is. It was symbolically instructing the children of Israel who God was. And so the whole point of everything that God had done was to draw them into relationship with himself. Are you following me? And so what Paul is saying here is everything that God had done up to this point for the children of Israel was to bring them into the same type of intimacy with, the, with him that he had with Moses. So they should be looking at the glowing and shining face of Moses and rejoicing that that's going to be them one day. Are you with me? They should be rejoicing. This is, this is the whole point of our faith. Wow, look what happens when we dwell in the presence of God and we see Him face to face and we commune with Him. Look at this. This is so wonderful and we we should rejoice as a result of it. So it's such a tragedy that they wanted Moses' face veiled. You know, Paul goes on in this passage. He says something really interesting. He says... um, In verse 14, "...but their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away." Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. A veil. Do you see this? So this veil, this physical veil that Moses had over his face, is a a symbol for the veil that was over their hearts. And what kind of veil was that? What created this veil? We're going to find out more about that here in just a moment. But but think about that a veil over their hearts. And he goes on to say this yes, to this, verse 16. But when one turns to the Lord, what happens? Verse 16. When one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed the veil is removed now the lord is the spirit and wherever the spirit of the lord is there is freedom and we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the lord are transformed into the same image so there it is the lord wants our the veil to be removed and there's something about accepting christ that removes that veil from moses face from our hearts are you with me we need to ask ourselves the question though What puts this veil up? What makes us unable to see God's glory? What puts this barrier in between us and him so that we can't behold or gaze upon or soak in his presence? Have you ever felt that before? God's presence in your midst, and you just, it's like, I I love being here, but I can't quite, I couldn't quite sustain this. I couldn't quite stay in that place. It's it's difficult for us. Well, what causes this? You know, there's another veil that's very prominent in the Bible, and especially in the Exodus story. And that's the veil that existed in the tabernacle, the house that God had built. And if you're not familiar with a with tabernacle, but God was very specific about a mobile sanctuary. That the people should build so that it could all of its furniture, everything that happened there, all the sacrifices, all of the offerings, everything that took place there, would teach the people about who God was. Remember, we, we've been talking about how God made Eden and everything in it in order to teach humanity who He was, and then God made the wilderness tabernacle, and then God made um, uh, Solomon's temple, and then God, and then God was in the hand of Herod's temple, and then Jesus was a. Uh, was a construction that God built to teach people about him. God is constantly changing himself in order to teach humanity who he is. And in this tabernacle, in this sanctuary that he had Moses and the people build, uh, there was a fence, a fabric fence around the outside and as you'd go in the front door there were several things. There was an altar of sacrifice where the animals would be sacrificed and as a burnt offering and there was a laver which represented cleansing and baptism and then there was an actual physical tent or building and as you'd enter into the first compartment of that building you'd find some different things you'd find a table with bread on it that represented the presence of god and the manna and um, on the other side you'd find uh, lampstands that were always burning As symbols of the presence of the Holy Spirit. And then in front of you, there would be an altar with burning incense. And the smoke of this incense would fill that first room of the the sanctuary. And then right behind that altar of incense, does anyone know what was there? A veil. That's exactly right. A veil. It was a thick curtain. Some scholars have said that this veil was so thick, it was about as thick as a man's hand. It was a really thick piece of cloth. And uh, it was very important because behind that veil was the Ark of the Covenant and the physical presence of the Lord. But I want you to think about this for just a second. What is the real practical application of that veil existing? Why was it put there? Why was it there? The reason was the same as the reason Moses had to put a veil over his face. It blocked the view of God's presence. And we study this out a little bit more, and we find something very powerful about what God was teaching us through the sanctuary, through the tabernacle there. And let's go to Leviticus chapter 4. Leviticus chapter 4. What was taking place there? Because the worship... In the tabernacle teaches us what God was trying to show with this veil. Leviticus chapter 4. Beginning in verse 4, it says, He shall bring, this is the priest, He shall bring the bull to the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord and lay his hand on the head of the bull and kill the bull before the Lord. And the anointed priest shall take some of the blood of the bull and bring it into the tent of meeting. And the priest shall dip his finger in the blood and sprinkle part of the blood seven times before the Lord in front of the veil of the sanctuary. So what was taking place in front of that veil? A blood of sacrifice is being sprinkled in front of it. And again, everything that took place there was symbolic. Now let me ask you this question. What is a sacrifice? A sacrifice is one who gives up his life for another. Isn't that true? Well, here we find that this bull has given up its life already. And what's important to recognize is that as soon as that sacrifice is made... Forgiveness is given. So, some people have gotten confused in the past that all that was taking place in the sanctuary was in order for God to be able to forgive people. But that's not what's happening here. You see, God is dealing with the problem of sin and sinfulness in the sanctuary because the problem of sin and sinfulness has confused the whole world about who God is. And as you study through the sanctuary, you realize that all the things that are taking place there are to show how God is good and holy and righteous, even in the midst of a world filled with turmoil. Are you following me? And in the end, the blame of the problems that we have because of sin get put back in their rightful place. Where is the rightful place for all of the blame for sin? on Satan that's exactly right and so every year the people were learning this that Satan is to blame for the world's conditions amen now Satan isn't the sin bearer he doesn't create forgiveness and our sins aren't placed on him but the blame or the guilt for sin are placed in their rightful place are you with me he's responsible for it and so this blood of this bull that's taken in before the veil is not in order to obtain forgiveness for people what could it possibly be let's first take the application of the veil moses put a veil over his face to block people from seeing the glory of god are you following me and then the blood from this sacrifice or the results of a sacrifice the reason for that sacrifice are taken and sprinkled at the base of the veil why You know what this blood represents? All of the things that block us from seeing God as he is. What types of things are they? Just about everything in this world. The things that we inherit from our our ancestors. You know there's things in all of us that complicate matters in our lives. And there's things that we choose sometimes as well. We cultivate it on our own. Are you with me? We choose sin sometimes. And all of those sins, all those mistakes, all the heartache, all the conditions of the world, the pain, the suffering, the loss of loved ones, the the diseases, the, the debts, the problems, all of the things in this world that we experience, what do they do to us? They confuse us. One of the most natural things to do when we struggle is we blame God. Isn't that true? And so this blood is being taken before this barrier as a symbol of all the things that confuse us about God and prevent us from seeing Him as He really is. I'm glad that God is teaching us that He has a way that He's going to deal with it. Amen? Are you thankful for that? Yes or no? He's going to deal with it because I want to have the kind of experience that Moses had, don't you? I want to dwell in the presence of the Lord and I want my face to glow with His presence. I don't want to have to not look at it. But it's those things in our lives, our sins, our choices, our problems, our fears. It's called Babylon in the book of Revelation. It's the confusion that this world creates. And it's a whole lot of it. That's why there's a veil. Even if you were to seek God and truly want to know Him, there are still things in our lives that would prevent us from seeing Him clearly. Our culture even does that, doesn't it? It's interesting how different cultures worship in different ways. And uh, some cultures will judge other cultures on certain issues, And call them unholy, and really it has more to do with custom and tradition than it does biblical truth. And so, everything about us, our whole psychology, is wrapped up in this world and how it works in ourselves and in our relationships, and it's just so confusing. So even if we were to see God, we too would probably be like the children of Israel and say, oh, please put a veil over your face because I can't look at it, I can't comprehend it, I don't understand it, it's fear. it makes me afraid, it, it's too much for me to bear. It's part of being human. And so, God has a way to deal with our humanity, with this world, with the things that confuse us. And let's look at a very powerful passage in Matthew chapter 27. Matthew chapter 27 and verse 50. Matthew 27, 50. Matthew 27, 50. So this is the story of the crucifixion of Jesus. And uh, something very powerful takes place. We'll begin in verse 45. Matthew 27, 45. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders heard it and said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, put it on a reed and, and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come and save him. They were very confused. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, as soon as Jesus dies, he gives up the breath of life. Look what happens. And behold, the curtain, the veil of the temple, was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. So when Jesus dies, what happens to that veil? It's torn in two from top to bottom. Notice, It was a very high, very thick veil, curtain. If it was torn from top to bottom, it could not have been done by a man, by a human. God tears the temple veil in half because, my friends, what has just taken place? What has taken place? Jesus has given His life, but think about what that means. That means that all of the questions about God and who He is are answered. Do you agree with me that God's character was on full and complete display when Jesus hung on the cross? Who God was, what His character is like, all the questions that our humanity creates, all the questions that our world creates were answered when Jesus died on Calvary's cross. There was no more... uh, Need for us to say, who is God and what is He like? Because all of that was answered on Calvary's cross. That's when angels were finally convinced. Even up to that point, there had been a debate because Lucifer had been spreading lies about who God was, and some of the angels still weren't quite sure. But when they saw Jesus die on the cross, it revealed to them a part of God's character that even they didn't know. And it revealed to them who He really was. And their questions were answered. People say, is God loving? And you look at the cross and and your question gets answered. Is God good? Is God merciful? Is God kind? Does God care? All of those questions are answered when when we see Jesus on Calvary's cross. Amen? And so this veil, this barrier, is torn open... When Jesus, when God's character is on full display, amen, there's no more veil on Moses' face shielding the people from the presence of God. There's no more curtain in the temple. The door is open and we may walk in directly into the presence of the Almighty Creator of heaven and earth. Because we know Jesus. Jesus even confirms what we're saying here in John chapter 12. John chapter 12 and verse 31. John 12, 31. This is what the Scriptures tell us. Jesus is speaking. I've actually preached on this passage before. The Greeks, non-Jews, had finally come to Jesus and sought His teaching and wanted to hear from Him. And Jesus realizes that the time for Him to fulfill His purpose has come. The promise to Abraham that he'd be the father of many nations is here because these, this is a different nation. These are the Greeks. And they're coming for, the, for salvation from Jesus. And so, um, here is what Jesus says. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler, Satan, be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to Myself. He said this to show by what kind of death He was going to die. So He starts this little section by saying, now is the judgment of this world, or now is this world condemned. How is this world condemned? Let me ask you that question. What event condemns or judges this world? It's right there in that passage. I hear mumbling, what is it? It's the cross. It's Christ hanging on the cross that condemns the world. And what do I mean by the world? I don't mean people, necessarily. I mean how this world works. With its selfishness and its, its slavery and with its... its, its hate and it's war and it's uh stepping on little people to get ahead and and all of the things that make up this world and how it works is condemned or judged when jesus hung on calvary's cross because the character of god stood in stark contrast to what we experience in this world somebody better say amen to that are you are you with me are you asleep the character of God as seen in Jesus on Calvary's cross stood in stark contrast to anything else that we ever experienced in this whole world. So the world is judged when Jesus was lifted up. When the character of God was on full display, it answered all of the questions about who God is. And it simply condemned this world and how it works. It told us that there is a better land waiting for us. It told us that there is a truth and a goodness and, and a love that we can trust. It told us that we serve a righteous and holy God who is completely selfless and totally loving. It answered all of our questions. It tore the veil, the 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 thing that blocked us from seeing the presence of God. And it's interesting, in that Old Testament tabernacle, that sanctuary, if you were standing where you would offer your animal, you could actually look directly into the tent. You could see somewhat the the table of of bread and the altar and the the lampstands. But the thing that would block you from seeing the glory of God was that veil. It was always there. And that veil is a symbol of our confusion, symbol of our cultures, symbol of our pain, our addictions, our sins, our troubles, our trials. It's a symbol of everything that blocks us from seeing God as He really is. And then Jesus hung on Calvary's cross to show us what God is really like. And it's an incredible thought to think that God continuously keeps changing Himself to show us the same thing. God gave us Eden and walked with mankind, but God wouldn't sur- or man wouldn't fully surrender their heart. And God made a tabernacle and dwelled among us, and there were sacrifices and worship, and man didn't completely grasp it and, and hold on to it. And Down through the ages, God has continuously, time and time again, changed Himself in order to prove Himself worthy of our love he's just waiting for us to respond and then finally because we couldn't see him in any other way because we refused to look at his glory in any other way he became a human baby because who doesn't like to look at babies He found a way to communicate to us in a way that we could look at Him so that we would finally be able to see His glory in a way that even angels didn't expect. They'd never seen God become a man. They'd never seen that happen before. That's why Gabriel, when he goes to Mary and says, Mary, you're going to be pregnant. Do you remember the term that he uses for Jesus? That holy thing. That holy thing, he calls Jesus a thing. You know why? It never happened before. There was no word for it. That holy thing, Gabriel says, that you will be pregnant with. There's no word for this. It's it's incredible. The angels didn't even expect it. They, They didn't see it coming. And God reveals himself in a way that no one, even the angels that dwelled in his presence, were expecting to answer all of our questions. And he dwelt among us and he lived among us and he taught and he he preached and he healed and he loved and he cared to show us who God is. That's why Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You know, next week we're going to have a a Christmas program with some music and things and I'm going to give a sermonette. And I'm going to share with you a concept that I learned from the the great author C.S. Lewis and he has this fantastic illustration where he says, you know, that manger, that stable, was small. It was little. And the manger was even smaller than the stable. And the baby that laid in the manger was even smaller than the manger. But you know what? That little baby in that little manger in that little stable was bigger than the whole world. Because he represents all the fullness of God. It's truly an incredible idea. It's a truly incredible thought. Jesus is the one that tears the door wide open. And you know, that's really what being home is all about, isn't it? No matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, no matter the mistakes that you've made, the the problems that you've caused, home is a place where the door is always open. And so here, through Jesus, because we see Jesus, the door into the presence of the Almighty God is wide open for us. You know, I love it because no better illustration do we have than the first people that were invited in to the stable. Because it wasn't the the righteous holy leaders it wasn't the wealthy. It wasn't the educated. Guess who it was? Stinky shepherds. Uneducated shepherds who were out in the fields. Which, by the way, is probably shows us that Jesus' birth was not in December. Because in December, in the Holy Land, you're probably not keeping your flocks by night outside. It doesn't matter when the date is. What matters is that God became a baby. And the first people that he invited in to see him were just regular people like you and me. And in uh, John, or is it Luke? Let me get this. It's Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2 and verse 8. I love these words from the angels. They can't contain, they can hardly contain themselves because they've never seen this before. They'd never seen God become a man. Now, the God of the universe, the one who can measure the whole universe with the span of his hand, is now a baby. He's a baby in a manger. It's incredible. Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 8, this is what the Bible says. And the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord, and this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Well, let's go over to Bethlehem and see what's happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. When they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. Just regular people. First ones invited home when the door was ripped wide open by Jesus. You know, that's really what home is all about, isn't it? Where the door is always open. God knows what kind of people we are. Yet, the door is open. God knows what choices we've made in the past, yet the door is open. You see, God has not been waiting for you to be good enough for him to pay attention to you. God repeatedly has chosen to change himself in order to earn your love. The God of the universe is trying to earn your love, to let you know that the door is open and he wants you to come home. The shepherds heard the call to come home and they did. Thousands and millions over the years have heard the call to come home and they have. You know, the world is thinking about that little baby that was bigger than the whole world. The one who tore the veil wide open so that we can see God as He really is. My question for you today is, why won't you come home? To a place where the God of the universe is showing us that all He's ever wanted is to be with you so much so that he will leave the glories of heaven where angels sing his praises, where he hears the stars sing to him, where he makes planets at his whim, galaxies on a thought. He left that place and became as vulnerable as he possibly could, a little tiny baby, in order to show you who he really is. So you will come home. The door is open. Why not walk through it? Let's pray. Father in heaven, today we are so thankful for Jesus. Lord, this world, this life creates so many questions for us, it's confusing. The moment we're born, we're inserted into a world that does nothing but confuse us about who you are and why we exist. So Lord, time and again, you've changed yourself. You've changed yourself to show us who you are so that we might love you back. Lord, Jesus was the ultimate way in which you have cleared up all that confusion. Confusion fell when Christ was lifted up, when baby Jesus first cried. Lord, it was the cry of truth. It was love. It was your character. Lord, today we realize that the, that wall, that veil, that confusion has been torn down. We can see you for who you are because you and Jesus are one. In Christ we know you and our questions are answered. There is an open door directly into your presence today because of Him. And so you're saying to us, come home. Come home. So Lord, if there's someone here that needs to rededicate their life to you, Lord, I pray that they would do that right now. That they would walk through that open door and come home. If there's someone here today that has never fully given their heart to you, they would look at Jesus and realize that you are fully known through him. And they would walk through that door and come home, because, Lord, all you've ever wanted, all you've ever wanted is just to be with us. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for calling us stinky shepherds out in the fields to be the ones, the first ones, to behold that baby. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.